Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us equipment to move snow and vehicles to get us to places we'd like to be that even keep us warm. Thank you for clothing to wear. Thank you for the ability to walk or however we get transported from one place to the other, that we can actually move from a place to a place. God, that all these things that we have, the very breath that we're breathing right this moment, it's a gift from you. The people we're sitting around are gifts. So we just stop before we do anything and praise you. And I ask that you, as we move into this, that we acknowledge the gift of your very presence which we've felt and experienced as we've gone through this service, through kids and through music and all different things. And now take your word, I pray, and speak to our hearts. Speak through me and to my own heart as well, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you know um, that I live on a small hobby farm. It's about four-plus acres, and it's... One of these things that I grew up as a suburban kid, and so living there, I remember when my first my wife first came to me, and we actually took the property and built this home and got this thing in place. I remember thinking, I don't know if I want to live that far out in the country. And I got there that first week; it was so quiet, it was almost scary. And I wasn't really crazy about it until about a week later. I went, "This is the best thing ever." You know, this peace and this calm, it was great. Well, one of the things we've done is we have this little barn in our, on our, our, our little hobby farm. And in our barn, we made a decision a, a few years back to put in an invisible fence, which keeps our dogs from going in the barn, which now I realize, you know, post that decision, maybe seven years or more ago, wasn't necessarily the wisest thing because we have barn cats and with barn cats, we give them food because we want them to live and eat. And we collect all kinds of other animals as a result of that. I have actually become quite the trapper. I have trapped woodchucks, raccoons, possums, and even a skunk. Ew. Yeah. I won't go into that story. But as a result of that, we get also a lot of stray cats. And, you know, they kind of, you know, they must put a sign outside our barn. You know, you can free lodging or something. And I went out on, on Black Friday, the, the day after Thanksgiving, to the barn, going to feed the horses that we've got. And I look and I see, in the corner of my eye, I see this little tiny kitty sitting next to this big tom that doesn't really belong here. We didn't, I, I didn't see any cats that were pregnant, but there's a little kitty there. And um, I'm thinking, I've got to grab this thing. It's gotten really cold. And so I kind of move over quickly to it, and, you know, or slowly to it, and, and, and get up near it. And the tom doesn't like me at all. So as I'm getting closer, the tomcat runs, and I lightning fast grab the kitty. Yeah, I just thought I'd add that part because it's kind of fun. Uh, <clears throat> I did though. I mean, as lightning fast as I could grab, and I actually got it. And, and the thing was just really afraid, upset, hissing and spitting and and doing you know squirming and doing everything it could to get away and I brought it up and put it in a little kennel and it sat in the kennel just scared, shivering and just so full of fright. I got the name Scaredy Cat makes sense. And I remember we tried to do what we could to, to calm this thing down and 
It took almost a day for my daughter to get it to a point where it was calm enough that she could actually hold it and, and pet it. And so here is the next morning. It was a Saturday morning. And I decided after I finished my message, I was going to sit down in our basement and, and read a book and, and do some reading. And thought I'd bring the kitty down and, you know, it's part of the process of making it gentle and calm. And I put it down there and I, at a certain point I'm holding it and it seems like it's doing just great. But I don't want to keep it in this little kennel, so I put it underneath. I, I devise a strategy of a laundry basket that I put over it so it has its little prison but can still move around. Great idea, right? The thing's crying like crazy. I'm reading away, and all of a sudden I notice there's no crying. So I'm thinking maybe it's asleep. I look in there, and there's no kitty. Scaredy cat, which we named Floyd because it was, uh, is that a long story? The Iowa game, the pig, anyway, Floyd runs underneath this stereo console kind of cabinet we have, which is about this, you know, un, but to the floor underneath it you can only get in, and there's no way to get in there because the front's closed, the back goes in the back, it's up against the wall, there's no way I'm moving this thing. And I'm thinking, oh no, this thing is going to take forever to come out. And it did take forever to come out. It cried and cried. Finally, my daughter, after hours, was smart enough. She started leading this trail of food. And this thing came out slowly. It took a long time, but eventually she had this board there, and the thing got out far enough. She went like that and grabbed the cat. Okay, why am I telling this whole story? Because it's just fun. Anyway, um, as I processed that and started praying about it, you know, the next morning I was journaling, and I always journal like little things that are going on. And that was when it captivated my attention because... I thought to myself, God, how often do you see me in my own little spirit, in my physical body, just clenched up, all afraid, all scared? Here I am, I'm taking this little kitty in, and I, I want it to have food, I want it to be loved, I want it to be able to play, I want it to enjoy itself, and it's just being this little kid. How often do you feel that way? Life circumstances change, things happen. You know, you lose a job or something occurs that, that's really negative or, or you just are afraid. Some of you, you, know, you live and you, you just think about the future and you go, what if, what if? And you live this fearful thing and your father in heaven is looking down and you're just in this place of fear and worry. One of the great things about the Christmas story is it is told to tell us this truth that God, Emmanuel, is with us, that God is for us, that God has given himself and entered into history in order that we might live not in fear and not out of worry and not with panic attacks and not with these kind of things going on, but that we might live confidently. And I don't want to make light of it if you're in a place where you're working through some of that. There's some, you know... Those are difficult things to work through and to process. But you know what? The truth is this, that God deeply loves you and he wants you to live confidently. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look at just a couple of themes that you find in Matthew 1 and 2. We looked at verses 1 through 17 last week and we're reminded of the fact that through this genealogy and this lineage, Matthew wants us to realize that this Jesus who is with us, who has come to be with us and to, to die for us and to live through us, has all the descendancy necessary to be the one who was called the Messiah. 
But as we look at this, and we looked at it being an authentic gift this week, I want to tell you, it's guaranteed that God has given himself to you. And there's some things you can actually hang your hat on, so to speak. God makes it very clear that he wants us to trust him completely. And as you go through this story, you'll see he doesn't want us to be moving into a place of worry and fear. Because God, as he lays this out for us, wants us to know a couple things very clearly, that he watches over our life and that his word will not fail. That he watches over our life and his word will not fail. He, <clears throat> he doesn't just do that with the New Testament in the story on the birth of Christ, but all throughout history, all throughout the beginning of time, God wants his people to know it. So at one point, through Moses, God speaks to Joshua, who as they're beginning to you know, transfer leadership and Moses will no longer lead the people, Moses comes to him and gives him the word of God. He says in chapter 1 uh, uh, and verse 6 of Joshua, he, he comes to him and he says, God wants you, Joshua, to be strong and courageous. And he makes a statement because he will lead you into the land that was sworn to by your father, to your forefathers by God. Now, he doesn't say be strong and courageous because just maybe God will or be strong and courageous because there's a possibility that God will. He says be strong and courageous because the very purpose of God is to lead his people into that land and he's chosen you to do it. So be strong and courageous. And he ends it in this way in verse 9 of this little part of the scripture. Have I not commanded you? I've given you a command that I am the God who oversees and watches and gives his word to perform it, to fulfill what he has promised to do in your life, in the life of your people, and it will happen. So I command you to now rest in the truth of this promise and rest in the truth of my oversight to bring it about. And I say this because it's so easy for all of us to worry about things, worry about our kids. It's easy to worry about our pocketbook. It's easy to worry about what's going to happen with our, our physical health. All these things we can worry about. And God says, what I want you to do is to rest. I want you to know peace. So the birth story of Jesus is a reminder, but more than a reminder, it's an actual experience that we can look at, that we can know for our own lives as well, to live confidently. And the first thing I want you to notice is, is that we're called to live confidently according to these, these two chapters because God watches over us. In fact, throughout these first two chapters, Matthew intentionally de- demonstrates God's watchful eye over the whole process. I, I found this amazing as I was studying this and preparing this and kind of changed my direction a little bit as I was, as I was studying this and looking at this. And, and I found that five times in two chapters... Matthew relates this idea that God is watching over to intervene to make certain the things happen that he said would happen. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. And then five times later, he shares with us how it came about. And I think it's interesting if you watch this, because when you look at this, you'll see that he's highlighting a specific activity of God to every stage of this child's life. You see God protecting and specially taking initiative to intervene on, its, on, on this child, his son, the Messiah's life. And in a sense, you could say God is this doting father. He, he's this proud papa who's watching over his son, making sure that that which he has purposed will happen. In fact, five times in these chapters you'll read of his protection, 
through intervention. And, and look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. You'll see these angelic visitations, and through them God guides his servants to ensure his child's destiny. He has a plan and nothing will stop at verse 20. But after he considered this, Joseph, here he's a righteous man, he's a holy man, he has had Mary come to him, and Mary shares with him that she's pregnant. She is been visited by an angel. I mean, the story, you've heard it before, you hear it at Christmas in this. Just put yourself in Joseph's place. He's a good guy. He's a holy guy. He's a righteous guy. He has this young, this, this, his, his, his soon-to-be-married wife coming to him and saying this. And he says, okay, listens and then goes off the process so that he's processing. And it says, after he processed this, he fell asleep. You can see him wrestling with his thoughts. And as he's wrestling with his thoughts, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. I want you to just settle down. God intervenes in the place of a righteous person's life and says, here's what I want you to do. Here's the plan, the steps. Here's what I'm asking you to do because I have something in this. Trust Mary. You haven't had any reason to distrust her in the past. Now through this dream, an angel comes in and you see this doting father, this father overseeing, saying to an angel, you know, you better go down right now. He's dreaming. He's just processed this whole thing and he's chosen that he's going to kind of quietly and in a good way kind of separate himself from her and divorce her. But would you go down and... And it says that he became obedient and he followed what God had done to that intervention. Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. You read in verse 7 that Herod called the Magi secretly. The Magi are coming from the east. They're the, you know, we call them three wise men or kings. They were probably um, scientists in one sense of a royal lineage or something along that line. And, and, and they secretly, says Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. And all along, we know as we read it, I don't know if the Magi know it, but all along we know his heart isn't to go worship him. This, this new king could be a threat to his throne, especially if it's one that they think is predicted to be the king that's been shown by the stars, which they truly believed in that. So verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with the mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then look at verse 12. Here is God, the father, the doting, watchful eye of, of the father over this child. And this says, and having been warned in a dream. Now he's gone to Joseph in a dream. Now he's standing there and he kind of says to some angels, you know, I'd like you to go down to those three wise guys. Interrupt one of their dreams. And, and tell them to go a different way. Because that's what it says. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Here are these guys who have set off to meet this king, this newborn, to worship and to recognize him as the worthy one. And their process would normally be to turn back, go through Jerusalem, go to the places they had been, and go back to where they were. That was the easy route. In fact, that was the route you should take to go back. But they knew because of the warning in the dream, because it's the father who's doting, watching over his son, tells them not to go that way so they don't go back to Jerusalem. Because if they would have gone there, 
You have to understand, Jerusalem at that day was not this huge, large city. There's more than a better chance that around the city gates, the king said, I want you to watch for these three wise guys to come through here again. Even if they intended to go through without even stopping, they went another route. Because this doting father is watching over. He looks at Joseph and he says, oh, Joseph, you know what? I'm going to help you out here. He looks at the three wise men who are seeking to follow him after his heart and desiring to know him. And he steps in there and they go another route. So then you read in Matthew 2, verse, verse 13. When they had gone, look at this now the third time, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And again, the doting father, chapter 2, verse 19. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph while he was in Egypt. And said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. You see, you see how this father's at work, intervening, guiding, watching over, making certain that what he wants to happen will happen. In Matthew chapter 2, he begin with verse 21. So he got up, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream. Isn't that Cool. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he should be called a Nazarene. Here is the Heavenly Father. His eye is on his child. He's issuing directives to angelic messengers. It's just, I get this picture of he's waiting till they're dreaming. I wonder if he's, he's, he's aware of the fact that he scares them to pieces if they were to come when they were awake. You know what? We tried that a couple times. Mary was really good with it. Zechariah had a problem. Can you, can you get the idea? You know, let's do the dream thing. They seem to accept that better. And so God intervenes. We tend to forget, folks, that we are spiritual beings with physical bodies living in a spiritual world. We tend to confuse the fact that we are made in the image of God. We tend to, to forget the fact that this world will come to an end and as spiritual being, spiritual life continues on. And so this is not just about living a good life now and getting some things around us. It's about preparing a spiritual life to live in a spiritual realm for the rest of our lives. And these human bodies in some way will be redeemed. They'll be different than what we have. You are working with people who are spiritual beings. You are living with people who are spiritual beings. There is a realm that we do not see. And I'm not talking about a microscopic realm. You can go, and, and we're finding more, the vastness of the universe that we do not see before us. You can go down in the depths of the ocean. They're finding things that they've never found before. And that's things you can actually see if you can get there. And there's a spiritual realm around us, a dimension we... We know only by faith, by the word of God. Some have at times, because God is good enough, some, sometimes God has a plan or a purpose that he will actually, for some people, he'll draw the curtains back and they can actually see spiritual realities. And some of you I know, I talked at the first service and I had some people share with me, they have actually seen the curtain was drawn back for a purpose for an individual's time. I don't understand how that works always, but I do know that it's true. And at times God actually 
allows for that to occur. I remember when um, Reuben David, some of you have heard Reuben David in some of the adult classes. He was um, born in India, came to faith in Christ due to his mother coming to faith in Christ. He came and spoke at our missions conference, and he's just, if you listen to him, he gets almost, I think he gets more excited when he preaches than I do. Because he has seen, he has experienced, he has understood the realm of the Spirit. He has a mother who lived in a remote area. He grew up as a child. They didn't have necessarily a church or any kind of evangelistic around, witness around them. But as, as people from India in another faith, it was one night that the Lord appeared to his mother in a dream. And she came to Christ, to faith in Christ. And as a result of that, he came to faith in Christ. As a result of that, they began to understand what it means to walk with God. And as a result of that, he comes here today and he tells people about Jesus Christ. Do you know that we live in this realm that we don't see, that God uses, in fact, many angels around us? I was talking with um, Matt Hansen. Um, uh, Matt is married to Nora, Nora's parents. And remember Matt, he shared a few weeks back about his story of how he was um, in China and they went on this kind of mountain expedition tour kind of thing. And he tells about his story of he was talking and walking with a friend of his as they went out to to do some mountain climbing. And as they were on their way, his friend who's an atheist, he had shared many times with him about Jesus. But he, he felt like he exhausted the opportunities, you know, talk to him from every angle. But his heart was so passionate because he knew he's walking with not some physical being, but a spiritual being who has a life that goes forever. And so in his heart, he wanted to talk to him. And as he was just kind of thinking about it, he had this prompting he talks about on his, in his own heart, this hard kind of prompting that said, talk to him about miracles. And he's thinking, why miracles? God, why, why am I talking about you know, miracles to an atheist? Not really. But he feels this prompting again because in his mind he said, I'll talk to him later about it. Not now while we're doing this, you know, they're doing his climbing. And he he has this prompting. I wonder, folks, I wonder if we could see and pull back the spiritual realm. If if God doesn't, his prompting, sometimes we feel this, this, this kind of impression in our heart. Isn't God using his own angelic beings to say to him, no, I want you to talk to him now because that's what he felt. He, he, I want you to talk to him now. And, and the other thing that was very strong in his heart was, you'll forget to talk to him later. So he begins to talk to me. He tells a story. And if you, you listen to the story, it's only moments later after he talks to him about miracles. And the guy's not phased one bit by what he talks about. That he slides down this mountain and he falls to crack open his head, breaks vertebrae in his neck. I mean... All kind, you, you kind of go, the guy's not going to live. There's so many medical accounts of why he shouldn't. I was talking to his uh, mother-in-law, and she said, you know what? If his neck would have moved this much, he would have been paralyzed. And I just wonder, could it be that we don't see this, but could it be God in his protective care, how he comes and intervenes? Could it be that when he was, listen, he stands up, he's out in the remote area, some farmers help him, they put him on a donkey. And he's walking and I thought, could it be some angels just stabilized his neck? We don't know. I kind of like to think that. But you know what? We do know this. We live in a realm as spirit beings, with spiritual beings around us that God calls to care for us, to watch over us. Here's the truth about angels. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews has just compared Jesus to the angels, and he says there is no way you can make a comparison. He is so far greater. You know why? Because he is God in flesh. And he goes through this, all these comparisons and these verses from the Old Testament, and he ends it by saying at the last part of his argument, are not all angels merely ministering spirits sent to serve you, those who will inherit salvation? 
Now, is not your God good? Is not your God watching over you? Psalm 91, one of my favorite verses, when I find myself like that scared little kitty all wrapped up within my physical being, all saying, oh God, I don't know, can you handle this one? I don't think so. What about the future? Psalm 91 is one of the greatest passages of scriptures to begin to dwell in your heart. I'm going to encourage you, if you are a person given to fear, given to anxiety, given to worry, the greatest thing you can do is to know the word of God. Place that word in your mind. The mind of that word, that truth, begin to dwell deep in your heart. And as your heart, through your, whole, through your spirit, begins to control it, it changes things in you. It really changes things in you. This verse says this. If you say, the Lord is my refuge... And you make the most high your dwelling. If you, if you make this concerted effort with your, your heart and say, I'm going to choose to live this way, where I live in the presence of God, I recognize that Emmanuel means God with us, that God is with me, that God has this whole spiritual realm around me. His eye is over me. He is going to, he is going to bring to fulfillment the purposes of my life. And he will actually intervene and guide if he need to do so. That he says this, if you make His presence the place where you dwell. And it doesn't mean living here in church, and it doesn't mean always having just reading the Word of God. It means with your heart, disciplining yourself to have that truth in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Now catch this. This is the truth about angels. For He will command His angels concerning you, guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that they will not, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Even as you ride on a donkey, you will tread on the lion and the cobra, and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Now you might be going, well, yeah, what about the things, you know, things happened in my life, when was God, where was God then? All I know is that God sometimes allows things, we live in a sinful world, things do happen, but you know what we do know, is that the purpose that God has for your life is going to occur. One of the greatest purposes God has for your life is that He wants you to know He loves you so deeply, He wants to be involved in your life, He wants you to walk with Him in an intimate way where He does speak to you, you do hear His voice, you do understand, as you have other believers around you, that you walk in such a way that what His purpose is for you is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to be in the image of Jesus Christ? It means to walk like He did with His Father, in heaven. It means that you walk in this sense that God knows the time and the hour that He will allow anything to come in your life and it will all be for the glory of God. Nothing will touch you. Nothing will touch you that is outside the scope of God's eye and hand in your life. That's why He says give thanks in everything for every circumstance because what God has purposed for you, what God has purposed for me is that He wants to make us People who love Him with our whole heart receive that love and walk in it and then love others the same. And He will do it. I am so convinced He's going to do that. I know that in my own life. I know that in my own heart. I know that one of the things that God is doing in my life over these years has been developing my character. Beginning to say, Kevin, the most important thing that can happen in your life is that you form your character to the image of Jesus Christ, that you become in every way full of all the fruits of the Spirit. You are love and full of joy and through of peace and, and, and faithfulness, kindness, gentleness. All these different things begin to inhabit your soul. I was talking to our church chairman, Kevin Lakin, the other day, and, and these words came out of my mouth. One of the things God is doing for us is He has for all of us this place of promise. He has a promised land. He has a place He wants us to live. And that land is not necessarily a land that is, is, is trouble-free. It is a land where we know His presence and we walk in the intimacy of it. And He has promised that for everyone. He says that we can walk into this land. But here's what happens at times. We will not get to the promised land until we live in the promise of what's going to happen. 
As, as we understand that there is this land of promise that He's called us to, He wants us to know peace. He wants us to walk with Him in confidence. He wants us to realize that He will guide and watch over and intervene when need be. And He will bring His purposes to fulfillment. He will bring us to this place. The way you get there is by believing the promise that gets you to that land. And so we begin to see this, this God. And one of my other favorite verses is Psalm 34. Here's, here's the truth about angels. I, I, this is a verse that I often, when I am really wound up, that I just dwell on. I'll go to sleep repeating this over and over in my head till I fall asleep sometimes. And I start with the first verse, but I'll just give you the, the latter verses. Verse 4. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Well, that in the moment is not what I'm experiencing, but that's the promise. So I go, you know, he's going to deliver me. I'm just going to live in the promise. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. I experience troubles, but I go, you know what? The promise is, that's my God. And here's the verse. The angel of the Lord encamps, surrounds himself around those who look to him and fear him, and he will deliver. The other thing that you see in this verse, these verses is, is the fact that not only is he, is he watchful over us, but his, his word is given, and when God gives his word, he means it. It will not fail. God is not in the habit in any way of failing to come through on what he has said. He is not the kind of God who makes false promises, ever. In fact, Numbers 3, 23, 19, another scripture if you want to just get truth into your head. God is not a man that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. It's not the kind of God you're serving. He didn't speak to your heart about something. He didn't tell you at one point that you were forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ and all you need to do is trust that and he will impute upon you a righteousness that is of his own. It's not of you. You don't have to find your worth and sense of identity and who you are and the things you do or what people think about you. You can actually live in the freedom of the fact that this God loves you and as a result of that, that's your identity. And now you can begin to live in such a way that you can hear people when they even have given you truth that talks about your character needing to be changed in certain ways. You're able to listen because you're in a place where you're free from having to prove anything. And when God says that, He's not like a man that He should lie in any way. He's not a human being. He would change His mind about this. If you're forgiven, you're forgiven. So don't think in some way that when you do wrong and you have done something wrong, that somehow you've got to feel really bad. And if you feel bad enough, long enough, and if you do it for a long enough period of time, maybe God's going to go, okay, you can come back in. You ever get that way? What God basically says is, you're forgiven, I give you grace. Now all I want you to do through repentance is not that you get all sad necessarily, but you begin to understand what has happened and what you're responsible for and the hurt that you've caused and the offense you've caused Him. And when you begin to understand that, that usually brings about a sadness in your heart. And when you understand that, you then move into this place and God says, just enjoy the fact that you are a human being and you do fail and you do sin. And I have, I have come to you and I want you to walk in the freedom of the love and the grace that today you are a forgiven person and you will be for eternity. Yeah, amen. That's the truth. And so here's the most striking thing about the birth of Jesus. as presented by Matthew. That each and every step as he intervenes along this way, you see 
he makes these comments that also God fulfills his promise that he made in the Old Testament. This is how the birth of Jesus came about, is what 1.18 says. How? Well, God spoke in the past, and he fulfills it now in the present. Five times again. So five times you see him intervene. And if you look at 118 through chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, five times you'll see this statement where he says, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken or promised. Look at, if you would, verse 22 and verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Second time, Matthew chapter 2, verse 5 through 6. When he called together all the people, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people, Israel. So Matthew's kind of building his case again. Five times he said it there in the past, you know, the intervention through dreams. Now five times he wants you to know that when God gives his word, he's not going to fail. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, beginning with verse 14. So he got up. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And then we see a fourth time, verse 16, when Herod realized that they had out, been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned that the Magi had tricked him. And then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And then so one more time, just so we really get this, you know, we get the fact that God, he, he watches over like a doting father. His eye is on his child. His eye is on your purposes in your own life. His eye is not only on you. He also speaks word and those words he will fulfill. He doesn't fail. He's not a God to be taken lightly. When he says something, he says he'll do it. So he says one more time in verse 23, just beginning a little bit further earlier in verse 22, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he will be called Nazarene. I'm thinking of going through each of these prophecies because if you go back and you look at this one, you go, where does it say in the Old Testament that? Uh, maybe I'll just leave it there. Because when you look at the way God is fulfilling Scripture here, he's not just taking actual words he says, he also takes types and every little nuance that, that he makes known in the Old Testament. Everything, not only the exact words he says, but even the surrounding feel around it, everything is fulfilled in Christ. And so he establishes by two witnesses that the Messiah is who he says he is. So as you go through verses 1 through 17, what we looked at last week, the people, the lineage proved this point. Here's the first witness. They show the fact that he comes from a royal descendancy of David, the king. And it goes all the way back to the founder of Abraham. There's the first witness. Now the second witness, five times over. And it will continue in Matthew is the prophets. The prophets have also witnessed to it. How would you want any more? There's only two witnesses you need that speak to the fact that this is the Messiah. This is the one who has promised to come to you. And so he makes this simple point that God shapes the events of history to bring all these things to this moment of Christ's birth. God foretold it. He announced it. He spoke it in reality. The word became flesh. 
when God's word is spoken and you believe it, that word has power to change your very being. It has power to change you. And as it begins to change you, it changes the people around you. And as it begins to change the people around you, it begins to move into other places. What I believe God is doing here is he's calling for people who say, I want to I sign up. I want to be a part of this change. I want God to do in me so that what he does in me begins to impact the people around me. That they know this God who is intimately involved in our life, watching over us, and this God who says his word to perform it. So in every way possible, God showing through Matthew that his promise delivered, deliverance to the Messiah was being fulfilled. So what he says in predictive words and types and analogies and every description found in the Old Testament, these five prophetic verses point to the fact that everything found there is true. God does not lie. He is not like a man. He is whole, fully dependable. True to his word in every way. So that you don't have to be in your life right now like the scared little kitty going, oh, what's going to happen? And I really trust. And he goes, look at the birth of my son. I'm, don't you get it? I'm like a father. Toad over, watch over, making sure that every purpose would occur, that anything that stood against you, even a righteous person who was going to do something different, even, even a, a wicked king who wants to stop it, Nothing will get in the way of overseeing what I'm in the process of watching. And not only that, didn't I say by my word I would make it happen? It will happen. I will be there for you. I will, whether it is something you go through, I will be present for you. And in that process, I will do things within you you could never imagine that will place within you the ability to experience what you're hungering for out here. So God tells his people, Israel, that his eye is on them. They're, they're, let me give you this scripture. They're in exile. They're in this place of captivity. They're in this place of bondage, and you might be in a similar place. God comes to them some 400 years before they, the birth of Jesus. He comes to him and he says to this man, Jeremiah, in verse 20, chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. He says to him, you know, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, and 70 is a, is a symbolic way of saying when the test is over, when, when, when the discipline is done, when I have brought you to this point where you as a people, your character has been formed to what I believe it should be, then I will actually come and fulfill my gracious promise and bring you back to this place. Now, here's a word that you many love to camp on, because it's so true. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Do you believe it? Can God coax you out of that place and say, do you believe that? This past week in the St. Paul Pioneer Press, it was early last Sunday, there was an article called Keeping the Faith. Um, it's subtitled, it's the Viking interim coach, Leslie Frazier. It's subtitled, Leslie Frazier didn't set out to become a coach, but says a higher up and a higher power led him to where he is. I'm not sure if Leslie felt that when he was 27 years of age and in the height of his career. It says in the article, Frazier, a cornerback who led the Bears in interceptions in 1985 and never had returned a punt in his life on this 
Super Bowl winning championship team took a reverse handoff from returner Keith Ortega, planted his left leg to turn upfield and tore his ligaments in his knee without being touched by a single New England Patriot. Frazier never played another down. The Bears were leading the Patriots 20-3 in the second quarter of the title game. They ultimately won 46-10. An article says, And the senselessness of the career-ending injury on a gimmick play had made the outcome all the more painful for Frazier. It was one of those things where you just, in your mind, you're going, God, what? what? This is, I mean, uh, I'm 27. I got my career ahead of me. He writes, here's a quote from Frazier, My career ended so abruptly I didn't have a chance to prepare for the end like some guys do. It was hard, he said. I've seen some tragic situations. People I had a lot of respect for. All of a sudden they're falling apart because they're not on the team anymore. My faith got me through it. Just believing that God had a plan for my life, that he must have something better for me. I just didn't see it at the time. You ever been there? You've maybe been there, or maybe there right now. You just, I just don't see it. Well, God was watching over Leslie. Leslie's future looked bleak, but God had a plan. For two years, Leslie tried to do everything he could to rehabilitate his, rehabilitate his knee. In the process, he began to start considering, maybe I should sell insurance. Trusting God, yet going through it with all these questions and trying to figure it out, and, and yet saying, okay, God, I'm trusting the fact that you have something better for me. I'm just going to keep moving into that place, that place of promise. Now, here's where it's kind of fun for me. My dad, who's 79 years of age, calls me about every couple of days now. Called me last week, like Saturday before that paper came out. He goes, Kev, pick up the St. Paul Pioneer Press tomorrow. My dad has a real interest in Leslie Frazier. On Thursday, my dad calls again. Kev, get a copy of the New York Times. I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting these things. Well, fresh, Leslie Frazier is, you know, seeking to trust God, questioning God, trying to rehabilitate his knee. God's watching over. He has a different plan for this 27-year-old. And here's the New York Times article states, Dr. Kenneth Meyer, who's my dad and was president of Trinity International University, he wrote Frazier a letter pitching the job of a head coach at Trinity International University in August of 1986. Frazier, puzzled by the request, he actually threw it away. But... Meyer, who had, Frazier, had met, never met Frazier, but knew of him through a mutual friend uh, on the school's board of regents, he would not take no for an answer. I'm a person of faith, said Meyer, a former pastor. I prayed about it. I just felt God was leading me to him. I just knew he could do it, and his wife was on my side as well. See, Gail Frazier eventually persuaded her husband, himself a follower of Jesus, to interview with Meyer. Two months later, Frazier said yes. And he writes in the article, it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Frazier coached at Trinity for nine years, then coached at the University of Illinois, then to the pros where he coached with Tony Dungy. And as you know today, he's the interim head coach of a football team where the Metrodome, they were going to play, it's collapsed, and, and they're not playing today. But through it all, God was watching over Leslie. And God had a plan for his life. And God had a future. And here's the other cool thing, too. Not only was God watching over and God working there, he was bringing people in his life to help guide him and to direct him to make sure that those purposes would occur. He used a guy 
who wrote him a letter. He throws it away. And his wife says, you know, I think you should pay attention to this. He eventually gets an interview and he starts on a path. Is that not God? Now, I say that only for this reason. I want you to consider two things. You may be, you may be that open door for someone else. You may be near someone who is kind of curling out of control and full of fear. And you may be the person that steps in and says, you know, there's a God who deeply loves you and has a plan for your life. I mean, we don't know when we're going to step into a person's life and when God is going to use us like he used angels to step into dreams. We don't even know what's happening around us in the spiritual realm. But we do know this, that God has a purpose and we get to be a part of it. And then one other thing. God is so reliable. He will do what he says. I am challenging us as a church body to think about this. Do we so believe that what God is doing in us and what he's creating in this body and what he wants to have happen in this body is by the hand of God, so much so that we believe that he's reliable. He will do what he says. He has said that he will make this place and is making this place a light to the world. Do we believe that God's doing that? Now, when you look at your own kids and you start seeing and you go, oh, man, you start getting all worried. Do you believe that God is faithful? He is reliable. He will meet your every need. And if you move to a place where you don't try and control, don't try and manipulate, but you say, God, I believe in the peace of your promise. I'm going to live that way. You will be a witness. You will be a person who helps even open a door for them. So I just want you to think about two things. Who's God leading you to to be involved in? And how is God creating in you? This place of peace through the promise that he isn't going to fail. And you're going to establish that by walking with him in trust. Let's pray. Father, we um, just thank you for your presence. We thank you for the very truth of your word. Five times over you say that you intervene. Five times over you fulfill your word. God, you will do that. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.